Well, good morning, everyone. As was said earlier, my name is Weston Duke, and I am the RUF campus minister at Middle Tennessee State University down in Murfreesboro. I was here with you all a couple of months ago, um, but as was mentioned, I brought my wife and my eight-month-old daughter with us this week. We are on our way up to our denomination's annual gathering in St. Louis later today. Um, so if you see them after the service, feel free to say hello and tell my wife how cute our baby is. <laughs> Thank you. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the text that we're going to be looking at today. And last summer, my wife and I decided to do what many people decided to do during that time, some home improvement projects. And one of the projects on our list was laying down new flooring. And as a first-time homeowner, I had never tackled anything like this before. So I naively declared that we would just do it all ourselves. After all, the YouTube videos didn't make it look that hard, and we would save a lot of money and, and learn a new skill. So it seemed like a great idea. But as I got a little farther into the project, I started thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Why did I decide to do this? And honestly, I feel the same way about the psalm that we're looking at this morning. Let me explain. Uh, this is not a psalm that was assigned to me. This is not a psalm that is occurring in a series that you all are doing. This is a psalm that I chose to do because in my initial reading, there were some verses that made me think this would be a great idea. But then as I started to study this psalm a little more, I began to think, what have I gotten myself into? Why did I choose this psalm? Because this psalm, it's a little bit of a downer. It's pretty morbid in parts, and consequently, it's one that has often been read at funerals. So aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> well, when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, he meant this psalm as well. And so as we look at it this morning, we're going to trust that God is speaking to us through it for our benefit. So with that, would you turn your attention with me to God's word? This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? 
Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, <laughs> we thank you that you speak real words to us, words that sometimes we don't like to hear. But we know it's because you love us and you want us to know you and your purposes for us. And so as we come to this psalm this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear you speaking to us and hearts to receive what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as with every Sunday morning, I got a notification on my phone about my screen time for the past week. Now, in case you're not familiar, screen time is an app that tracks your smartphone usage. And normally, it just gives me the average amount of time that I spent on my phone in, in the past week. But it can also tell me the specific amount of time I spent on my phone in any given day. And more than that, it can also tell me exactly what I was doing with that time. And this screen time notification usually acts as a reality check for me. Because I'm, I'm the kind of person who prides myself on not being especially addicted to my phone. I don't have a lot of apps. I turn most of my notifications off. I even have limits set on my social media usage. And so my operating belief is that I'm doing pretty good with my phone. I know how to use it responsibly and wisely. But then every week, I am confronted by the screen time notification. It forces me to take an honest look at my phone and how I spend my time on it. Well, Psalm 90 acts as a reality check for us as well. It forces us to take an honest look at our lives and how we are spending them. And as verse 12 tells us, it does so so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Now, wisdom is knowing how to properly navigate life in God's world. And so we can't be wise if we are out of touch with reality. No, the only way that we can go through this life well is if we see our lives with proper perspective. And so Moses gives us this reality check so that we can get a heart of wisdom. And this morning, we're going to see three realities in this psalm that we need to know in order to get that wisdom. The three things that we are going to see are the eternity of God, the mortality of man, and the possibility of joy. The eternity of God, the mortality of man, and the possibility of joy. So first, this psalm begins by asserting the eternity of God in the opening verses. And, and God's eternity is one of his central attributes. In the 17th century, there was a group of pastors who wrote this theological primer called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And when they tried to succinctly tackle the subject of God, they started by saying that God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. 
So his eternity is the third thing that they mention about him. So it's an important concept for us to understand, but it's also one of those things that's kind of hard for us to get our heads around. And so this is where the Psalms are helpful because they can take what seem like abstract concepts about God and describe them using poetic imagery from real life. And that is what Moses does in verse 2. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the world and the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I remember when I was learning about geological formations in elementary school, and in being from East Tennessee, I took pride in learning that based on the roundedness and the weathering of the Smoky Mountains, they were much likely older than the more pointed but more popular Rocky Mountains. In fact, geologists will tell you that when you look out at the Smoky Mountains, you are looking out on some of the oldest mountains in the world. Well, this psalm tells us that as old as the Smokies are, God is older still. He has been the Lord before they or anything else ever existed. And Moses gives us a second comparison to help us to understand God's eternity in verse 4. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Now, sometimes when we are describing a moment in history that's imprinted upon our memories, we'll say something like, I remember it like it was yesterday. And when we say that, we are talking about something that happened a few years ago or at most a few decades ago. But God could say something, could say that about something that happened millennia ago. Because God is eternal, a thousand years to him is no different than a single day. Now, how is knowing God's eternity, how does that help us to learn wisdom? Well, first, it helps us to realize that the God that we encounter in the Bible is never obsolete or irrelevant. As a society, we're pretty guilty of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We believe that the things that came before us are antiquated, if not archaic. We have this belief about technology. That's why we feel the need to get a new phone every two years. We have this mindset about societal norms and values. That's why if any of you are stay-at-home moms, you may feel weird or even guilty about being such. We even have this mindset about people. The vigor of youth is overvalued in our society, and the age and experience of the elderly are undervalued. And so it's very easy for us to bring this chronological snobbery into our thinking about God. We may disregard the God of the Bible as being outdated and untenable, or at the very least, we may be tempted to do some updates on God to fit our contemporary sensibilities. After all, the, the Bible was written thousands of years ago, right? So we could use a little bit of modernizing. Well, there's a reason that Christians study a book that was written thousands of years ago. And it's because this book tells us about a God who is eternal. And thus, he is the same God with whom we have to deal today. Yes, the God of the Bible existed long before us, but he's also going to be around long after us. And so he never becomes obsolete. As we will see shortly, we are the ones who become obsolete. He is the only one who is always relevant. 
And we are only relevant as long as we know him. Now, a second way that God's eternity helps us to learn wisdom is that it tells us where to look for our sense of permanence. This is what Moses speaks of in verse 1. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, we live in an increasingly mobile society. Very few people live in the same place their whole lives. We move around a lot. And that can leave us feeling rootless. And I know that there are some military families in this church who probably know that feeling acutely. Well, I want you to know that that is a condition that is not unfamiliar to God's people. When Moses wrote this psalm, God's people were likely wandering around in the wilderness. And before that, they were slaves for 400 years to a people not their own in a country not their own. And before that, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were nomads. But Moses says that God has always provided his people with a home. And that home is in himself. And so we should ask ourselves, what are we looking to to give us a sense of permanence? How are we seeking stability in our lives? It could be through establishing our careers. It could be through building a family. It could be through nesting our physical homes. Or it even could be through living in our country. I just want, want to say here that America is not our dwelling place. One day, America will be a footnote in the annals of God's kingdom, just like every civilization that has gone before us. No, our country, our kindred, our careers, none of those things are enduring. The only thing that is enduring is God himself. And so the only thing that can truly give us a sense of permanence and stability is God himself, because he is eternal. So that is our first point, the eternity of God. And Moses then contrasts that with the mortality of man in the next few verses. And I warn you, this is where things start to get a little bit morbid. But the reality of our mortality is introduced in verse 3. God returns man to dust and says, Return, O children of man. This is the end result of all of our lives. We end up back in the ground. And Moses goes on to describe three aspects of our mortality. First, we see our fragility in verse 5. So Moses says that we are easily swept away like a flood. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those videos on the internet where someone is trying to drive like a Toyota Camry through a flooded street during a hurricane, and you're sitting there thinking, that car doesn't stand a chance. Well, we are the Toyota Camry, and life is the flood. Moses also describes us like a dream. And we all know how fragile dreams are. We can be sound asleep, having a very pleasant dream, and then the alarm goes off and shatters it. Well, our lives are just as tenuous as our dreams. And then to layer it on really thick, Moses adds that we are like grass. At the beginning of last summer, I unwisely tried to plant some grass seed on the barren patches of my lawn, and I tried so hard to keep it alive. I watered it multiple times a day, but to no avail. 
the grass could not withstand the scorching summer heat. And in the same way, we wither under the harsh conditions of life in this fallen world. And here I think it's appropriate to say that our lives are always this fragile, not only during a pandemic. Even as we emerge from the pandemic, our lives, the fragility of our lives has not changed. We just become a little less aware of it. Now, second, we see our brevity. And this is also alluded to with the comparison to grass in verse 5. Grass sprouts in the morning, but then it fades by the evening. But Moses goes on to spell out our brevity a little bit more in verse 10. He says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Now, the younger people here this morning might be thinking, 80 years sounds like forever. But if you're here this morning and you're in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s or maybe even your 90s, I would guess that you would probably say that it hasn't felt like that long. And that's because it's not. It's not that long in comparison to the thousand years referenced in verse 4, let alone in comparison to the eternity of God. Our lives are brief. Third, we see our futility in verse 10. Moses goes on to say that yet the the span of our lives is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Now, working with college students, I often hear complaints about how hard it is to be a college student. They just can't wait to have all of those pointless papers and sleepless nights behind them. What I don't tell them is that the difficulty doesn't end with graduation. In many ways, life is only harder after college. Our whole lives long, we labor day in and day out, either at our jobs or in our homes. And we face sorrows and disappointments, and we persevere through difficulties and hardships. And at the end of those struggles awaits the same fate for all of us. Our lives come to an end. Our work comes to nothing. Now, our mortality is something that we all cognitively know. We all know that we're going to die someday, but practically, it's something that we deny. Tim Keller is a pastor and writer who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in the spring of 2020. He did announce a couple of weeks ago that his treatment is going very well, but in March of this year, he wrote an article in The Atlantic entitled, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. And this, uh, this quote is in your handout for you. He wrote, Despite my rational, conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a remarkably strong psychological denial of mortality. Instead of acting on Dylan Thomas's advice to rage, rage against the dying of the light, I found myself thinking, What? No, I can't die. That happens to others, but not to me. And when I said these outrageous words out loud, I realized that this delusion had been the actual operating principle of my heart. We are all mere mortals, but we try to ignore or deny that fact in our daily lives. And it's only like when Keller, death draws near to us that we begin to comprehend that reality. Now, there are some who might say that a constant cognizance of our mortality is unhealthy. 
if we were always thinking about our end, then that would get in the way of really living. But Moses says just the opposite. He says, no, we really live when we recognize our limits. This is what verse 12 is about. Numbering our days is how we get a heart of wisdom. And that's because knowing our mortality puts our lives in perspective so that we begin to seek out the things that are most important. And you may have had an experience like this where the shadow of death was cast over you in some way. And that made you want to redeem the time, as the Apostle Paul says. And so you tried to spend a little less time at work and a little more time with friends and family. You tried to spend a little less time on your phone and a little more time reading the Bible. But the problem is that if and when that shadow of death passes, we quickly lose our perspective. We shortly go back to our old ways of frivolously spending our days and living for the pleasure of the present moment. And that is why Moses prays that God would teach us to number our days. Because if we're going to live like we are dying, to borrow a phrase from Tim McGraw, then we need God's help. But this psalm tells us another reason why knowing our mortality is important to living wisely. And that is that death is a sign that we all stand under God's judgment. We often speak of death as being natural. As the Lion King taught us, it's just a part of the circle of life. And sometimes we'll even say that someone died of natural causes. And that may be a a true statement biologically, but not theologically. No, death was never meant to be a part of God's good creation. And so in that sense, it is not natural. Death is the result of God's judgment on sin. And we see that in this psalm in verse 3. Moses alludes to the beginning of the biblical story when he says return, when, when he says that God returns man to dust. So in the beginning of the biblical story in Genesis, God told Adam that if he disobeyed him and he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would surely die. And after Adam goes ahead and does this, in Genesis 3.19, God tells Adam, For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Moses also connects our mortality with God's judgment in verses 7 and 8. He says, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God sees all of our lives, both public and private. And thus, he doesn't see us as generally good people, as we see ourselves. No, he sees all of our iniquity and even our secret sin. And so we stand under his judgment. And the question that Moses poses in verse 11 implies that it's not our natural tendency to think about this, but that it is wise for us to consider it. And so this psalm compels me to ask this morning, have you come to terms with the fact that one day your life will come to an end and all that you have said and done and even thought will be judged by God? Have you considered that? Well, thankfully, that is not where our psalm ends this morning. (laughs) If that is where our psalm ended, 
with us pondering our mortality in God's judgment, then as verse 7 says, we would be dismayed. (laughs) But Moses goes on to speak of the possibility of joy. And that is our last point this morning. This is really the centerpiece of Moses' prayer in verses 12 through 17. Rather than all of our days being defined by dismayed, he prays that all of our days would be defined by joy. Look at the contrast between verses 9 and 14. In verse 9, he says, All of our days pass away under your wrath. But then in verse 14, he says that we may be satisfied with God's love, that we may, be, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. And in verse 15, he goes on, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Joy is possible. But how do we experience that joy? Well, first, verse 13 tells us that it comes from trusting in God's mercy. Moses prays that the Lord would return and have pity on his servants. And he prays this with a lot of confidence. Because Moses has seen God answer this prayer before. On the heels of the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, Moses prayed almost the exact same thing. He asked God to turn from his anger and to have compassion or pity on his people. And Exodus 32 tells us that that's exactly what God did. And so Moses trusts that God has abundant mercy for all of our sins. Now second, verse 14 tells us that this joy comes from tasting God's love. It says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And God's steadfast love is his covenantal love. It's his faithful and abiding love that God promised to show his people to a thousand generations. Not just for a thousand years, but a thousand generations. And so we can know that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Third, verses 16 through 17, tells us that this joy comes from knowing God's power. In verse 16, Moses prays that God's power would be shown to us. He says, let let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. So amidst the toil and the trouble of our lives, we can still see God at work bringing about our good and our flourishing. But then in verse 17, Moses also prays that God's power would be shown through us. He says, let the favor, or as it could be better translated, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us to establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So all of our labor and all of our toil doesn't have to be for nothing. No, God can use it for his enduring purposes. So in short, joy is possible when we stop looking to ourselves to solve all the problems of our mortality. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go through the list. Our iniquity leaves us guilty and condemned. And we have a nagging sense of that. And so what do we try to do? We try to atone for our own sins either by punishing ourselves in some way or by trying really hard to be good. Our fragility leaves us feeling weak and vulnerable. And so what do we do? We try to secure our lives by our own strength and by our own 
power. Our brevity means that we're really pretty insignificant. And so we try to make a name for ourselves by accruing the praise and approval of other people. And we constantly are fighting against our futility by trying to build up a legacy by the work of our own hands. And does any of that give us joy? No. It only leaves us feeling empty so that we have to continually fight against our own mortality. Sidney Pollack was an actor and movie producer who died in 2008. And he was pretty accomplished by the world standards. He directed a lot of movies. He acted in many more. He won a couple of Oscars. But if you've never heard of him, then that just proves the point of this psalm. But towards the end of Sidney Pollack's life, his health started to decline. And his family wanted him to pull back from his work, but he just could not lay it down. And in an interview, he explained why. He said, every time I finish a picture, I feel like I have done what I'm supposed to do in the sense that I have earned my stay for another year or so. Faced with his mortality, he felt like he could never stop working to justify his existence. And so it's foolish for us to spend our lives trying to solve the problems of our humanity because we ultimately can't. Only God can. And so what is wise is for us to come to God with our iniquity and our fragility and our brevity and our futility and to ask him to fill the emptiness left by our mortality. Because when we come to him, we find compassion and mercy for all of our sins. When we come to him, we experience steadfast love that satisfies our longing to matter. When we come to him, we see his power at work in our afflictions and in our sorrows. When we come to him, we see his power to beautify our feeble efforts for his glory. We can rejoice and be glad all of our days when we come to God and ask him to solve the problem of our mortality. And how does he do that? Well, Moses would have never believed how God would answer these prayers of his. In the fullness of time, God revealed his steadfast love by sending his son, Jesus. And Jesus lived a life that was free from iniquity, even secret sin, and yet his life was brought, in, brought to an end by God's anger. Because on the cross, he bore God's wrath and judgment on our behalf so that we might receive God's mercy and favor. And with the resurrection from the dead, God showed his glorious power to overcome sin and even death. And through Jesus' ascension, God established an enduring kingdom so that our labor for him is not in vain. And here's what Moses definitely could have never imagined. In Jesus, our mortality comes to share in God's eternity. In Jesus, God truly becomes our dwelling place forever. Because as we read earlier, Jesus came so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. 
And so we can be glad not only for as many days as we have been afflicted. No, we can be glad and rejoice for innumerably more. Because in Jesus, this light and momentary affliction of this life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's the reality check that we need. That is how we truly get a heart of wisdom. By knowing that, yes, we are mortal, but everlasting joy is possible when we receive life eternal in Jesus. Let's come to him and pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you confessing our own mortality. We are frail creatures who are justly deserving of your displeasure. And by your wrath, we are brought to an end. But we thank you that you have revealed your son, Jesus. You have revealed your steadfast love in Jesus by sending him to bear your wrath and anger on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that we would look to him and know that everlasting joy is possible through the eternal life that he gives us. And may we experience that joy even now in all of these days, all of these days that we continue to live and labor for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.